greed will make people do things that they'll look back and be embarrassed years later. And so we've just seen that in soybeans. Soybeans had uh, traded up over $1.50 and uh, uh, last week the phone was just ringing with people telling me how much, how beans are going to 12 and $13. And I said, why didn't you know this three weeks ago when they were on? Oh, it's amazing how bullish people get at the top and how bearish uh, people uh, get at the bottom. I'm Bruce Figger, a veterinarian living in Sylvia, Kansas, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I'm doing an interview with Tommy Grisafi, who is a commodity broker and trader and just an interesting guy. I met him when I was doing a panel for Granular, which is the uh, digital arm of Corteva. They're a really interesting group. And when coronavirus hit, they put together a series of panels. And out of all the panelists that I spoke with, Tommy was the one that really pushed the envelope. He said some things that I think would make people a little bit uncomfortable. So I thought it'd be fun to have him on the podcast. You're going to see that coming up here. But one thing I wanted to mention, I've been talking about the Articulate Ventures Network, and it's a group that's been growing, and I hope you feel like it's a place for you if you're the type of person that likes listening to these podcasts. One thing we're doing in the month of October is we're doing a sober October. So people in the network voted, and they decided that this was something we wanted to do together as a group. So we're all deciding what are those things that hold us back, and let's give them up for a month and see what it's like. So maybe it's booze, maybe it's marijuana, maybe it's Twitter. But it's things that people are giving up and they've got a community around them that they can talk about it and really try and discover more than it just being a sacrifice for your health. Try and figure out what this opens up that you maybe didn't think would open up because it's something that's so such a part of your life. So if you're interested in doing kind of collective experiences like this with other people, getting support, learning and growing, you might want to check out Network dot articulate dot ventures and know that if you're the type of person that enjoys this podcast you would be a person that would be welcomed in this community i'm glad you're here and now we're heading to this interview with tommy grisafi tommy grisafi welcome to the podcast hi vance thanks for having me i had to travel real far this morning and it looks like you traveled equally as far as so Good yeah, morning. these home offices have really changed the way people uh, engage and how, you know, you can be with your family in one second and then context switch and all of a sudden be broadcasting out to thousands of people. Uh, yeah, hundreds of thousands. And who knows who's going to see this? The other day I had a farmer call me. Uh, I did a meeting four years ago and he said, do you remember me? I said, I remember doing the meeting. I don't remember you, sir. How can I help you? So something we did four years ago. Someone just got a hold of me. I can't imagine with what's happening with the digital revolution, which, uh, as you've gotten to know me better the last few weeks, I, I may be a little late to the game, but I'm very aggressive once I get in it. Well, you and I met because uh, Granular, uh, which is a software platform that helps farmers manage what they're working on, uh, had a panel. And they were they had people on like you that uh, were kind of pushing the envelope. And I've b ran a lot of panels. But that particular one, Beth Lutter connected us together, and I had no idea who you were, but you were one of the first guests that I've seen that has really pushed the envelope on what you're willing to say, um, and I found your takes to be interesting, a little bit uh, unexpected, and I thought, man, I would love to have that guy on the podcast, so uh, I'm ready to have a rip-roaring conversation if you are. Absolutely, Vance. And just to let the listeners and watchers know, I have no clue what you're going to ask me. So this isn't uh, <laughs> this isn't scripted. We're not looking for a daytime Emmy here, but uh, 
let's have a conversation. So one of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting was your thoughts on inflation and when it was going to start showing up in the economy. And I remember when $6 trillion was added to the economy, I was running around like, uh, like the world was falling and uh, I got called chicken little. But it does appear from what you're saying that you think inflation is showing up in the world. Where do you think it's showing up first? Well, the, the most obvious thing to me was lumber. Uh, I've only traded lumber a few times in my life, but a friend of mine pointed it out to me, and it felt really high because it was down at 250 and it went up to 500. And then it went up to 1,000. And I called a couple buddies in construction, and uh, I said, obviously, you realize lumber's gone up. They said, not only has it gone up, it's tripled, it's quadrupled. Uh, they went to Home Depot one day, and they just didn't have a lot. And there's just uh, people like me, during the pandemic, I, uh, I'm part of the problem. I, I redid my back deck. My, my back deck was older, and I said, wow, uh, I'm home, and we're going to spend a lot of time grilling and on the back deck. And so we bought about $1,500 worth of lumber, and then there was a couple thousand dollars in labor to just replace the boards. And, and that $1,500 worth of lumber would be four or $5,000 now. That would probably be enough to stop me from that project and maybe just stain the old deck. But I'd still have to go to Home Depot and buy a gallon of stain. So people are fixing up their homes, their yards. My home's been painted. My deck's been back uh, fixed. I've never had the yard look so good. I should have bought Scott's Scott's uh, stock, Scott's miracle Grow. It's really wild to watch these stocks in Home Depot and Lowe's and uh, just anything that has to do with fixing up your home and your environment and making the quality of where you live better. But that comes at a cost to other industries, Vance. What other industries are, are not able to, to charge higher prices now? I would say the airlines would really have a hard time <laughs> price gouging right now. So I, I woke up early this morning. I was watching CNBC, and they had the head of the flight attendant union. And my wife, Gina, used to be a flight attendant for United Airlines. So I'm grateful. When we first uh, got married, we received our insurance from United Airlines for several years. And then she was actually flying the day of 9-11. And strange story, but you like to do podcasts and we have an hour to talk. My wife, Gina, used to fly that flight, that flight that went Boston to LA. She used to fly that flight for United Airlines and she knew several of the gals on there. And uh, so she got furloughed. That 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 day was enough for uh, her to stop working and we started a family. But United Airlines paid our insurance for four years after that. And I'm grateful and I still fly them today, except for I'm not flying. So there there's an industry that's not coming back. And uh, what we thought or how we thought people's behavior would uh, act during this pandemic, it's, it's, it's changing. My habits are changed, and I imagine others are also. So as a trader, how is it that you um, transcend just the average person watching what's going on out in the world and saying, oh, I think that's going up, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy it? What do you do that's different than just the, the regular guy that's seeing that, hey, a lot of people are going to work on their deck, probably, bought it, probably better buy lumber now? Well. As a trader, I would say there's advantages and disadvantages because this has never happened. And so really, really, really smart people are blowing up. And I hate to say this, but I like when really smart people get it wrong. So not that I'm asking an engineer to build a bridge and it falls, but uh, you didn't see a lot of people promoting negative $40 crude oil, but it went there. And so when smart people blow up, it creates opportunity, which is in our industry, we call volatility. No different than when your wife asks you to do something and you don't do it, she becomes volatile, uh, just like mine. 
and I become volatile. Well, the markets became really, really, really volatile. And that's where the opportunities created. Uh, I always tell people, and I like to watch videos on Warren Buffett, buy things you use and like. Uh, I recently uh, spent a ton of money on tech stuff. And I've been looking at what's in, who made this ring light? Who, well, you know, the camera says Canon. Who made this laptop? What parts are in this laptop? Oh, NVIDIA made this card. And and there's all types of tech names. I mean, as you know, a $50 webcam right now is going for $200 on the black market. So uh, there's a tech shortage and the whole world went virtual. And uh, there'll be a trade. I can't predict when, but there'll be a trade when we start to leave virtual and go back to more uh, selling the NASDAQ, buying the Dow Jones. That's been happening the last few days. Someone watching this weeks, months, years from now, you know, that advice will be sold by the time they see it. It won't even be funny. So there's been a huge move in tech. Tech's up about 30% on the year. Other stocks are actually down on the year still. So I, I'm i not one. Everyone, I had all these people call me who work in all types of industries. A bodybuilder called me, said he has a Robin Hood account, and he's going to buy the airlines in the shipbuilders. I just kind of giggled. So when people who aren't involved in our industry start telling you what they're going to buy, I kind of wonder where'd they get their skewed information from? Yeah, I remember. So I I, I um, bought a house one time with a business partner and we renovated it and sold it. And the reason that we got out so fast when we were in, it was going really well. We liked the renovations we were doing. But then we were at a party one time and somebody mentioned that uh, house flipping was a really great way to make money and that they were also going to do it. And they thought that it was like an easy way to turn money. And so we came home from that party, my business partner and I, and we were like, we got to get it out and we got to get out now. And uh, and lo and behold, I mean, we were a little bit early, maybe about a year and a half before the, the housing crisis really hit. But it was one of those things that you start realizing once the herd is all moving in a direction and you and that information has flown from the early adopters out into the the middle of the distribution time to get out yeah there's there's a beginning a middle and an end and i don't like to own anything even towards the upper part of the middle uh, I, i'm not the world's greatest trader or speculator i'm a i'm a commodity broker but i've been involved in markets for a long time uh and there's a pattern there's a psychology and Greed will make people do things that they'll look back and be embarrassed years later. And so we've just seen that in soybeans. Soybeans had uh, traded up over a dollar fifty, and uh, uh, last week the phone was just ringing with people telling me how much how beans are going to twelve and thirteen dollars. And I said, "Why didn't you know this three weeks ago when they were on?" So it's amazing how bullish people get at the top and how bearish. Uh, people uh, get at the bottom. And I could almost predict advance when my customers, when the markets really, really, really had a bad run going down in grains, particularly working with farmers, there's a certain group of guys when they call, I just almost smile and go, wow, so-and-so waited for corn to drop a dollar and now he's selling and he, he said the market's going to zero. Well, that's, you usually want to buy when people are doing that. And it, it, it sounds mean, but if you could learn more of the psychology of the market, and just be better at trying not to be emotional. And that's why there's so many algorithms. So really smart people decided that humans are too emotional and they let the computers drive the market. But I'll tell you one thing I learned during the pandemic. They'll shut those computers off. When when the you-know-what's hitting the fan, they shut those computers off. And there was a time 
for about a month, a month and a half, that the only people, not the only, that's a, a bold statement, but some of the only people trading the markets were humans. There was a time when only humans were making decisions because the markets were so volatile. And that was just an incredible, incredible moment in history. Well, I was watching something to your earlier point about airlines is that the ticket prices are set by algorithms and it's based on how many people are coming and, you know, it's trying to match supply and demand. And what happened was as the the number of people buying tickets went down, then the all of the airlines started saying, OK, well, we're going to drop the price and then less people were doing it. So they were like, oh, we got to drop it even more. And that's what led to all these other like things going on because you weren't selling seats. So then the algorithms that tie how many seats we're selling to how much fuel we need to buy start triggering. And that then leads into this weird cascade. And I think that uh, the only way you could pull that out is because you can't predict that's going to happen until it happens. So you can't teach the algorithms what they should do in this weird, in this weird moment that's been unprecedented. And those algorithms have to learn from something. So to your point of taking them off of the, the computers and putting them on human beings. Yeah. So I have a friend who works for a, a very successful black box company. You can call them black box, gray box algorithms. Uh, some of them have a, uh, there's a computer running the program, but there's a human kind of babysitting the, the, the computer. And he flat out said we had over 12 programs running and at peak craziness, they were all off, which really alerted me that it's time for the humans to get in there and try to buy low and sell high. And, there were days where the Dow Jones was down 1,800. Someone would think they're buying low and it would be down 2,400. And then later in the day, it would only close down a couple hundred. So there was no buying the low and selling the high, but there was definitely everything in the middle. And uh, my wife, Gina, had asked me, we worked together, and she said, do you think the market sold? This was about six weeks before the pandemic. She said, do you think the markets will ever get busy again like they were in 08 and 11 when you were, you know, if you're going to associate making a lot of money with success, uh, I would say I changed my opinion on what success is. But I said, no, I, I, I could just tell you the markets will never get as volatile as they were in 08 and 11. Fast forward six, eight weeks, and I'm, I look at her and I go, remember how I told you it would never get as busy as 08 or 11? It's twice as busy, twice as crazy. And that's what I get for telling you never. Never's a long time, a long time. And if, you, if, if you've lost someone you loved, you'd remember that you know, when they die, forever's a long time. And so how stupid of me, how arrogant, how, what a cavalier attitude to tell my wife that it would never get busy again. I'm lucky I didn't get hurt during the pandemic financially instead of uh, benefiting from it. So you're a commodity broker, but it's not like you have grain been sitting outside of your house where you're having people drop off soybeans and then take them somewhere else. So somebody from the outside could look in and say, hey, that commodity broker, they're just a middleman. And uh, all they're doing is taking parts of the profit away from the farmer that just wants to sell into the market. What is your what's your way that you think about this that's different than you being a middleman that's stealing from the from the two two ends? Well, Vance, that's a great question. And everything you said is true. They don't need us. And that doesn't bother me a lot. It doesn't even bother me a little. But the problem is the difference from where they're growing their grain and all the tools that come together to sell that grain at a break even or a profit. There's a lot of pieces and components and moving parts that they may or may not understand. 
or choose not to understand, or their educational level may not be, maybe they had a bad teacher and their father or grandfather or some bad habits. And so I, when I do meetings, and I do meetings all over the country, I always tell people, I know you think brokers are bad. So if you're so scared of us, why don't you become one? Or why don't you learn what we do? Because the truth is, the cost of entry into our business is almost free. So I can go all across America and say it's free to do what we do. Uh, you don't need to pay all these large fees. You just need to know how to do what we do. And that right there is the part that's missing. And so there's academia, there's high school, there's uh, college, there's ag colleges. I live part-time in North Dakota and I live two blocks away from the North Dakota State uh, Financial Lab. It looks just like this, but a uh, uh, spot for 20 people instead of two. And uh, it's just amazing how many farmers I meet from across the state who just, they need some education. And as you know, uh, if you think education's expensive, you should see how much money you could lose by not having it. And so I always challenge people to say, you don't need us. Go do this yourself. But I bet you don't know how. And if you want to learn how the how and you want to make your life easier, some people are willing to pay us very well to educate them and keep them out of trouble. And so, I look so at for myself that as more of a teacher. So for people that aren't involved in commodities at all, what are you doing You know, all, all day long? You're buying and selling, but you're buying from whom and selling to whom? Uh, <laughs> well, let's go back. What am I doing all day? I would say, first of all, I'm, I'm listening. And you need to be a good listener. And as I get older, I'm getting better when I'm not talking, of course. And so you need to identify what their problem or what their need is. And uh, everyone has different needs. So I like to meet with a farmer and ask them what they want. And maybe we don't do what they want. But my background, to go back a little bit, 30 years ago in uh, 1990, I went down to the Chicago Board of Trade on a high school field trip. And uh, I was not the best student, to say the least. But I found something I loved and I was passionate about. I found the markets. And that's why I actually have my home office and my office up in uh, North Dakota look like the markets because I'm so familiar with this look and feel that it feels like home. And so the the ability to learn what I've learned and then go teach people. I like going far away from Chicago and educating people because I feel, Vance, the further you get away from the city, the more need there is for education. And so first and foremost, we need to be better listeners. And then we need to be teachers. And you ask what I do, we help farmers sell their grain. There's a difference between the price at the Board of Trade and their local market. And, and there's a difference if a farmer has a bin or doesn't have a bin. There's a difference if a farmer has four generations of family land and wealth, and as Warren Buffett says, is, is part of the uh, ovarian lottery, versus someone who's just getting into farming. And as you know, with working with the young millennials at, uh, at your prior job, uh, s some of these people, the cost of entry is just out of control. So um, j just so I maybe go deeper into this, this particular part of the question, when you're describing this, you're saying there are farmers and they sell you their soybeans at a certain price so that then you go sell them somewhere else. Like, no, I genuinely not. don't understand how this oh, works. That's okay. Um, so there's a market. You don't sell your soybeans to Tommy or, or advanced trading. You sell your soybeans to your local grain elevator, your end user. Uh, and, and so, but there's tools in between. When you plant them, there's crop insurance. As you're growing them, there's futures and options. And so what we particularly do is help issue what I call insurance policies, uh, puts, 
calls. Let me let's go back a little bit. I'll, I'll if if you don't mind me treating yeah, you like yeah, a little yeah, kid. Yeah, no. How old I, are you, Vance? I'm uh, 38. How old are you? I am 48. So, um, Vance, you you have a vehicle, correct? Sure. Yeah. Do you have insurance on it? Oh yeah. Are you hoping you wreck your vehicle so you can get the insurance? No, I have it so that that way I, if, I, if something goes wrong, I'm covered, but I don't have it in order that I can use it. Right. That's what a put option is. That's how we look at put options. At least I do. Uh, I, don't, I don't get farmers involved in all these uh, convoluted trades as if I'm a market wizard. When you buy a put option, you're setting a floor. And, and that floor is a floor on 5,000 bushels of corn. So let's go back one more step. You ask what we do, what's the exchange do? When you buy or sell a future, the only reason there's options is because there's futures. And when you buy or sell a future, you're in control of 5,000 bushels of corn, beans, wheat, maybe Minneapolis wheat. You can buy a, if, if you got off this conversation and said, Tommy, I think gold's going up, you could buy a gold future. That's 100 ounces of gold. Now, the CME groups recently come out with all these mini contracts that are 10 ounces of gold in smaller contracts. So going back to you have a vehicle and you have insurance, that's a put. So Vance understands puts now. I don't think you'll ever have to ask anyone again what a put is. A put is a floor that's traded at the CME group, which was called the Board of Trade when I was younger. And that put is used to set price. For example, right now we have a bunch of customers who are setting a floor for next year. Corn's had a heck of a rally. We're buying Dece, Dece lingo for December of 21 corn puts. We're buying no November 21 soybean puts. And we are setting so, I mean, floors. I, I, let me, let me uh, break this down because I genuinely, this is a, an area that I have no understanding of. When you say I'm going out and buying a put, it means I've got um, you know 500 bushels of corn and the minimum price that I will have to pay for them is X, or that's what I sell them to you for? You will, you will buy the put, which is paying for premium, and then you will have a floor set. So talking 5,000, you got to be a bigger farmer than 500 bushels. Come on, Vance. So say, say you have uh, 10,000 bushels of corn you're going to grow and 5,000 bushels of beans. As the markets went up, I would have no problem suggesting that you buy a put or a floor on 10,000 bushels of corn and 5,000 bushels of beans. You're paying a price for that option. That's called the premium. There's a strike. A strike's the, the level at which we're insuring. For example, um, different people insure things at different values. If you own a home or a car or this or that, uh, I don't want to call it like a deductible, but in some ways, you have, I have very high deductibles. And if I was to wreck a vehicle, there'd be a much better chance that I would probably pay for a little bit of it out of my pocket before I'd turn it into insurance, okay? But these puts are a floor. And so you pay a premium and it guarantees that you have from 380 to zero. Well, as now we know from crude oil, it could be less than zero also, right? And so if the price is above that, does that mean that I'm going to get that price or no, I've already, okay. Great question. So the reason I like puts, especially for our clients up north, is how would you like something that you have a floor set a year, year and a half in advance or just weeks in advance and, and you have all the upside in the world? And so when you take what's happening and we started the conversation about inflation, if we're truly, truly going through an inflationary period, a put's a beautiful thing. A put's a really bullish stand. Now, the farmer might come back 
six months or a year later and say, hey, I invested $500 or $1,000 in a put option and expired worthless, I would have to come back with a rebuttal, but where did we help you sell your grain? They would come back then and say, if I knew the markets were going to go up, I would have never bought this put. And I would say, if I knew the markets are going to go up, I wouldn't be your broker. I'd be your very rich trader friend. So one of the interesting things that happened during the granular uh, panels is that every week I would ask people, what is your Peter Thiel uh, paradox? Which is you, you put forward an idea that on its face, almost no one would agree with you. But by the time you explain it, people say, actually, that's a really interesting idea. And the reason it's so difficult is that if you come out of the gate with your Peter Thiel paradox and people already agree with you, then you've failed. But the, then if you say something that nobody agrees with, now you've got to explain it. You had one that I think was really interesting, and you've maybe thought of some since then. But wh what is your Peter Thiel paradox that you brought up during the granular panel? Was it, can you give me a hint? Oh, it was, uh, it was about the um, farmers being employed by the government. Uh, absolutely. So whether they chose it or not, the government has very much become involved in their business. And since we've since done that granular interview, Vance, the government, as of a few days ago, thanks to some wonderful people we're involved with, and I'm not saying that sarcastically, the United States, gover the United States government issued another $14 billion, with a B, dollars to the American farmer. And so I, when I think of the American farmer, I think of someone who's strong, educated, fiercely independent, has an, has an opinion and, and, and will fight you over it. And here they are taking massive amount of money from the United States government. And if I was a farmer, I'd cash the check too. I'm not encouraging anyone to send it back. Uh, that's what the president does. He says, this, this quarter I'm sending my money to the Navy. This quarter I'm sending my money here. Don't do that. Take the money. But the United States government has gotten very involved in agriculture. And I would say that they're so involved that when we look back several years from now, we've always known that the United States government will pay us to overproduce. And that's a long history and could be a whole different podcast on why we're, we are where we are. But I think farmers actually think they're out here to farm and raise crops and make money. I'm like, you know, the, the United States government is paying you to overproduce crops, to provide food security and produce high quality food, fuel and fiber. And they want you to produce so much that when you produce too much, they'll pay you extra just so you don't lose money. And a large majority of agriculture right now, their profit, if there is such a thing in profit right now in agriculture, and there is for many, is coming from the subsidies from the United States government. So the other day I saw a tweet and it, I saw Jared McDaniel retweet it. And I'm, I'd be very, very interested in hearing your thoughts on this. It might be a little bit controversial, but it was basically... So the farmers are selling huge amounts of commodities to the Chinese, but at prices that are not high enough to be profitable. So we have to have to subsidize farmers, which means we are in effect subsidizing food going to the Chinese people. What do you think of that that uh, perspective? That that's true. It's not a new concept. Um, I, I don't think Jared reinvented the wheel. This goes back to Dr. Earl Butts. Do you know who Dr. Earl Butts is, Vance? The name is familiar, but no, I don't know him. Okay. Dr. Earl Butts was uh, Ag Secretary under uh, Richard Nixon and uh, a few other people. And uh, 
Dr. Earl Butts set a standard and he said, we're going to plant, we're going to change the way agriculture is working. And back then, the United States government was actually paying you not to plant. And Dr. Earl Butts said one quote that's very famous. He said, we want the American farmer to plant fence post to fence post and, and give America its single greatest advantage, which is to have the most affordable, high quality food in the world. And with that, that will leave America other money to use with discretionary items like large TVs and uh, maybe a Yeti microphone and a, a Zoom light. Who knows? But when I look at what I spend in life, food's barely on my radar. It, it, it's not. Uh, there's so many other things that cost a lot of money than food. And when you look at the rest of the world, he wasn't talking about America. He was talking about America against the rest of the world. Kind of like how I would think China looks at things. China would have a 50, 100-year plan, and they say it's us against the world, and we plan on winning. And some would say they actually are. So all Jared did was requote something that happened about 40 years ago. Yeah, that was actually put out there by a guy, Mr. Obvious 4. So I don't want to take anything away from Mr. Obvious 4 that had put that out there. But it's it's an interesting thing that you bring up about our food policy, because if you look at the way the Europeans did it, you know, people think that the European resistance to GMOs is ideological. But I think you can make a pretty strong case that this is the way that they subsidize their farmers. By not having GMOs, they were less efficient. Each farmer produced less meaning that then they uh, they needed more farmers to be producing the goods that they had. So as opposed to giving them cash in order to be able to do some of the innovations that they're doing or, or to produce at the level, they went the opposite direction. And if you go to Europe, their food is more expensive than it is in the U.S. Sure. And also when you get off the airplane and you go into the first pub or restaurant, you got to cut through about a, a, a 10-foot ceiling of smoke. So here they're all, we only eat non-GMO and they're smoking like it's 1920. I, I mean, there's all types of crazy and they got their own special type over there. So as you look out in the world and you see an election coming up as, as a trader, as a broker, how do you think about what everybody anticipates is to be extreme volatility? And I know you make money during volatility, but I have how, the opportunity to make money. That's I, true. I have the opportunity to make money. <laughs> I don't need anyone calling me, telling me uh, they want to send me money because uh, I'm willing to risk my own, but uh, none beyond that. So what is it what does it look like in an election year like like the one that we're in for you know the what seems like almost inevitable volatility Well it, it was interesting uh, a few months ago I had watched the documentary about Ruth Ginsburg and I found it fascinating and then I watched there's one that was about the real gal and then there was one that was a movie and I liked them both and I have two daughters and I had them watch them and I had my wife watch them so I've watched these movies a few times and I actually learned a lot about Ruth and uh, her family and her beliefs and how one woman can change the world. And so here we're coming into election. And at four o'clock last Friday, they announced that she had passed away with 47 days coming in the election. When we look back at history, that that might be one of the most interesting things that happened. And, and there's a lot of moving parts right now. And there's a lot of people who are angry and confused, and they don't quite know why they're angry or confused. And maybe they're going to blame the president. But uh, I often tell people when they're mad at something, I just ask them if they have a washroom in their house and if they could just go in there and look in the mirror and that'd probably be the person they're mad at the most is themselves for what they didn't do or the courage they didn't have to move forward 
or, or the bad idea they made. Everyone's looking for a scapegoat. And with social media, as everyone becomes a keyboard activist, uh, it's really easy to say, uh, I have a bunch of sarcasm. But then when you look back, Vance, there's no solutions. And so my opinion, Tom Grisafi's opinion is I have one vote. But I also have another vote that I figured out recently, Vance. And what other vote, I'm going to start interviewing you and ask you a question. What other votes do we have as American consumers that don't just happen every four years or every two years? Well, you, you have definitely two that I can think of right off the top, which is the way you spend your money and then the way you spend your attention. And, and those Bingo. two things are the, Bingo. are the way that you, yeah. I vote every day with my wallet. I vote every day with my wallet. It's not the world's biggest wallet. If I stood on it, I wouldn't be that much taller. But I do have disposable income, and so does my wife, and so do my kids. So do my parents. And if, if I'm going to a local establishment and they have an opinion that's so different than mine, I guarantee you I won't go there. It's okay to have your opinion. It just doesn't mean I have to patronize you and your business. And I, I have friends of all types. I've met so many interesting people at the Chicago Board of Trade. I love to travel. When I was younger, uh, I mentioned earlier my wife, Gino's flight attendant. She took me to Hong Kong. I've been to Germany. I've, I've been a few places. I, I leave my basement once in a while. But everyone has one vote. But we get to vote every day with our wallet. And then you mention another one. Yeah, your attention is – is, uh... People are always talking about, uh, you know, I hate what the news has to say and I just, I, it's all toxic. And as, as the moment you stop watching, the moment they stop being able to monetize your attention, which is what's going on. Like, I think there's a lot deeper belief that the, the ideological opinions of these different channels are anything other than they figured out how to get the largest swath of attention for the lowest amount of effort. And partisanship is a great way to do it. You know, I'm on red team. I'm on blue team. And you get people to, to focus on just those two things. Then you start making it so that's all they pay attention to. They don't even realize that the world is far more colorful than that. But as long as they keep you focused on those two things, then they get to keep selling your attention to advertisers. And so probably a, a, a vote that is just as big as where you spend your money is where you spend your attention. Sure. So... Uh... I, I haven't been happy with how some things are going, but I was able to pick up the phone, call DirecTV, and, and, and cancel them. I'm able to control what content I put in front of myself and maybe suggest to my family that uh, someone says, you want to go to B-dubs and watch the game? I say, absolutely not. I'd like to go here and do this. And so I have disconnected myself from professional sports uh, I still uh, I've thrown myself more into high school sports and learning who's the football player or uh, going and seeing boys tennis or girls tennis here or watching my kids play sports. And, and we are voting with our wallets. We are voting with our attention. And, and although people watch Hollywood, I really like that idea. I like that idea about going and finding out what's going on in your high school. You know, when you're in high school or you go to college, you think like, oh, I can't wait till I go to see the real world which is somewhere out there with the professionals or the people that are at the top. But like you will, you will never be close enough to impact that, that person. Whether you show up in the stands to cheer for them isn't going to make them run any faster. But if you go to a high school game, volleyball, football, basketball, and you're there contributing your cheers, that ends up mattering and altering the outcome of, of, uh, of the future. I, I, never, I never had that thought before. That's really interesting. Well, one time when I was doing a speech, Someone asked me if I farm. And I said, yeah, I raise one crop. 
I raised two little girls, and that's the most <laughs> important crop you ever raised in the world. And so maybe I don't farm, maybe I don't own a John Deere tractor, but the number one way to influence the world is to take care of your own garden. And when my garden doesn't have any more weeds in advance, I'll come over to your house and start worrying about yours. Yeah, that's, I, uh, I recently had the experience of getting more involved in my homeowners association. And I can remember when I first got into this uh, neighborhood, I thought, man, the homeowners association, what a waste of time. We just go there and we talk about things and so little progress gets made. And then uh, in talking to one of my good friends, a guy named Lyle Benjamin, it dawned on me, there is actually no group of people that influences my life, the life of my wife and my daughter, more day in and day out than the people in my homeowners association. And I am a fool to think that that's a waste of time. And that if I have any complaints at all about the way the neighborhood is going, they, there's nowhere to lodge them other than what am I doing to help the homeowners association succeed, how to be a better neighbor. And I think that this is a part of culture that I hope coronavirus brings back in a major way, because I don't know about where you're at, but where I'm at, uh, we went from having almost no walkers in the neighborhood to almost every single house here walks and we see each other and we encounter each other so much more. And that's the kind of community that, that stitches together beyond these political divides of one vote that happens once every four years. It's a great point. And, you know, I live here in Valparaiso, Indiana, and I told you I split my time between Valparaiso and North Dakota. Gina and I are waiting for our kids to graduate high school and we may we may mix it up a little bit, maybe go somewhere warmer. And then obviously I'll always be involved with the, the frigid temperatures of North Dakota, but uh, we, we have met more people. So we've been walking. Uh, Gina and I recently uh, became much more active in riding our bicycles. Uh, a few years ago, you may laugh, but we ran the marathon together, Chicago marathon. Now, unfortunately uh, I didn't win, but uh Many people say, you didn't run the marathon. I said, not only did I run it two years ago, that was the 10th one I've ran. And so it's fun to do things that other people can't do. Anyone could lip off and, and, and be a sarcastic prick, but only less than 1% of the United States population has ever run a marathon. And I can say I've run them 10 times. The first nine was about 70 pounds lighter. The, the last one, but I finished. And it's about finishing the race, Vance, about finishing the race of life. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. There's a guy named Scott Galloway who talks about for every hour of sports you watch, you should play two hours of sports. And you think like, imagine how different the world would be if for every hour that somebody watched sports or anything, not that it's anything wrong with watching sports, but for every hour you spend consuming what somebody else is doing, you have put two hours of of effort into it. It's It's a... Not only would it change your own physical, um, you know, your own physical health and the way you deal with the world, but running a marathon, you encounter so many other people. If you encounter another person that's run a marathon or done something really difficult, you now have a pattern language to discuss how hard it was, how you overcame it, injuries you had, uh, how it felt when you were successful, the drinks that you get after a big race. I mean, all of those things stitch together the community and they're uh, orders of magnitude more valuable than the time we spend on Twitter, which you recently left, didn't you? Yeah, about a year and a half ago, I left Twitter. Uh, uh, obviously, Twitter's a public domain. I have it up right behind me, but anyone could just log on to twitter.com and watch streams. That's free. But I do not communicate on Twitter anymore. And uh, you and I had spoke about this privately, but we could talk about it right now. I personally think the move is into private, into private communication 
if I do have a talent, a talent at all, why would I want to share it with the whole world? I'm not retired. I'm not a philanthropist. I'm not Bill Gates. And I say, Warren Buffett gave me his fortune and, and my wife and I are going to go, you know, reinvent uh, the toilet like he's doing or, or fix, uh, you know, come up with a vaccine for coronavirus. So I'm not at that level in my career where I could just go be, hey, I've learned something. I spent 30 years involved in markets. And now I want to give it away for free, which brings me to the point. If everyone's so smart, why are they on there telling you stuff? I mean, if you really knew something that could help you benefit financially, why would you tell everyone? Yeah, I think that um, I, I, the, the biggest value I get out of Twitter is that I end up crossing paths with people that I would not cross paths with otherwise. But the amount of energy that it is costing me or the amount of brain space that it's costing me, I think is too high. And like you said, we started discussing that there's going to be a move where people move away from these tragedy of the commons where there is some organization, Twitter or Facebook or something that is mediating the interactions between people. And instead, people may keep that in the digital domain. Like I use a thing called Mighty Networks to have my, um, to have my network, which I have called the Articulate Ventures Network. And people go there and they can have conversations where they don't have to worry about if somebody just decides that they want to cruise by and make a comment about it, you know, doing a drive-by. It doesn't happen anymore. So you start seeing a richness of discussion, not because everybody agrees, but because people can put ideas out into the world and somebody can show why that might not be correct thinking without trying to obliterate them and make them, you know, gone from the face of the earth, which is what so much of, of the public open access social media is. And that's because Twitter and Facebook are selling your attention. They are, they are giving you this free thing because they're selling it to advertisers. And so for them, the, the war there, the thing that grabs your emotion and rips you back into there is, is a way for them to make money. I haven't watched the advance, but several people have suggested there's this new document on Netflix and it was suggested for me to watch it. And uh, I probably will this weekend. Is it called the, the social dilemma? Maybe I think, and, yeah, the social dilemma. I heard that too. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll watch that and see, but, uh, it's interesting. We, we've lost one of the things that's helped me be successful in business is the physicalness, the actually going and visiting and spending time with the farmers. The digital you see behind me, this is just to not have to jump on an airplane. If there's a group of farmers who would like to pay me to speak in front of them, I will. But I don't know that I want to drive to Chicago, jump on a plane, fly to a city, rent a vehicle, and then go speak to them for something I could have just as done well here in the comfort of my own office. So, but the real Tom Grisafi likes to go visit people and likes people. And, and some people like me, not everyone. Oh, good thing I'm not running for local office. I don't, or any office. I don't know that I'd win, but that's okay. But that connection, and, and that's probably going to be the side effects that would happen from Corona. If you talk to someone who says 200,000 people died, I said, yep, that's right. And 50,000 people in America commit suicide. And we could talk, and I don't think you want to, nor do I, about a much darker part of society that's happening every day. And, and there's a lot of things that people have done. And there's a lot of companies that have a major motivation to put a product in front of you. And, and coronavirus was a perfect reason to uh, maybe, uh, without mentioning names or what product or what habit, we all have them, we all have vices, is that the pandemic was a perfect opportunity to lose your discipline. 
And I feel as a society, we've lost our discipline. I know I have. I'm getting it back. It's a lot harder to uh, fight back as you get older, whether it be physically or mentally, uh, emotionally, financially. Financially, you can, you'd be surprised what you can get done uh, quickly. But emotionally and physically, that takes time. Yeah. I, when coronavirus hit, I was so, it was the first time in my life where I was genuinely uh, worried about my health, not for me. So my wife was pregnant and all of a sudden I was like, if coronavirus takes me down, I'm now going to leave a wife and a child out into the abyss. So that fear was a definite motivator for me. I started doing the podcast as often as I could to find people that could teach me about it. And I was up every day working out because I was like, this thing is not going to take me down. And, and I, but I agree with you about the discipline on other things because, um, I, from what I've heard, there was a giant aluminum shortage and it's because so many people were buying, um, beer and, and sodas for their house that, that, uh, that they weren't buying out of pint glasses in bars. So now there was a giant run on aluminum and they couldn't keep up with it. And I've seen that show up mm. in my own stores where they don't have any aluminum cans. And that's to your point about the, the discipline. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you have a, a large life insurance policy for your wife and your baby? I don't sell life insurance, but I'm going to get back to those puts. I mean, don't you think Vance should have a big put under them? Maybe a million, $2 million policy? I'm willing to bet without you telling me, you do not have over a million dollars worth of life insurance. I think that you would be surprised how cautious I am, Tommy. <laughs> I like your style, kid. I like it. Well, good, good. So that's that's insurance, right? Uh, I I have a, a lot of life insurance, and I, maybe Gina wants the life insurance. I'm not sure, but uh, I, I still eat her cooking and stuff. But one of the things I was fortunate enough to do, both her and I, is right before the pandemic, about two months before, we both received a, a, another uh big group of, of life insurance. And we're not planning on dying. We're not hoping to die, but it's just a shame that there's policies out there, which is just a put on yourself, right? That's, that's what the point I wanted to make. You say you don't understand puts and calls. You do have life insurance, right? That's clever. That's a clever way to describe it. <laughs> Vance, you have a put on yourself, correct? Yeah, that's right. I do. All I right. never thought of it that way. You know, I, uh, I would have not been as, uh, clean or as like forward thinking about it, except for my wife is a former aerospace engineer. And when you get into University uh, of Notre Dame, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so she's, she's interesting because uh, she talks about how everything has to be in engineering. Everything is within tolerances, right? There's, you cannot eliminate risk. You can only say, what are we willing to do on that trade-off? And when you start looking at you know, planes or cars or insurance, it's all about numbers. And by having her be able to make it clear that I am not special just because the only voice I can hear in the world in my head is mine, that doesn't mean that I transcend numbers. And I think that that's putting a put on yourself is, is a great way to put it because it starts saying like, well, don't think of it as uh, your mortality, which is more difficult to look at. Look at it as a way to uh, put a baseline on your on your future earnings so that your family can get access to it in the future. I'd never thought of it that way. Well, maybe I helped you. And what your wife and you are touching on is actuary science. And it's just the numbers. It's crunching the numbers. And when we first started the podcast, I talked about one of the marvels of trading is that when really, really, really smart people blow up, they lose their mind. And so I doubt, and I know your wife's very intelligent, and you have a beautiful family, 
I doubt your wife would be a good trader because part of trading is losing often and eliminating your risk and taking losses. But as traders, we lose so much and farmers are incredible risk takers and they lose so much controlled by mother nature. And so the fact I have to run around the country and explain to people why I want to set a floor and buy a put and I hope the market explodes and I hope you lose your money on your put and they don't understand this is frustrating. But here in just this little podcast, I've explained to you already that you have a put on Vance, but you're very bullish Vance. You're, you're not a seller. You wouldn't short yourself, right? And so you have a call. Let's go to the other side of the spectrum. You have a call on Vance. And if I could buy calls in Vance Crow, I would, I would own a couple. And <laughs> during the pandemic, I decided I wanted to own a bunch of Tommy Grisafi calls. And I would say, the, I'm doing well. The market's going up on Tommy Grisafi. And maybe that sounds arrogant or have a cavalier attitude, but who else am I going to invest in? Why would I invest in Snapchat? Why would I? Maybe it's a great investment. I don't know. But the number one person to invest in is yourself. And maybe that's a message we can get across to people. Yeah. So I grew up, my father was a stockbroker. So I have a general understanding of, of the market. And that was always a big part of it. And the thing that my father taught us from the very earliest age was the value of compounding interest. And that's one of those things that it's, um, when you first learn it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. And then when you see into the beauty of compounding, it's almost like staring into the universe or something. Like it, it's this awesome thing. And when you're describing about investing in yourself, like the earlier you come to the conclusion that you are the driver of your destiny, the faster you start earning uh, compounding interest on it. And then there is some element of risk in that to, to your point about being a, being a trader. Like you do have to say, well, if I, if I bet it on me, then, um, there's a chance I may lose it all, or I may lose a huge chunk of it. But there, there is something important about coming up with the understanding that, uh, that your future is so dependent on you that you should be putting, I, I like that futures on yourself, buying them. So now you understand options, correct, Vance? <laughs> yeah. I'm not prepared to go trade them, but I do. I think I have a better understanding of them. I'm going to so, send you a bill. I'm going to send you a bill. <laughs> Tommy Grisafi, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know um, every moment is valuable to you, and so I'm, I'm grateful you spent some of them with us. Thanks, Vance. My pleasure. 